the way to deal with fear is not to drown it out or stuff it down or tune it out or anything like that. The way to work with fear is to welcome it and open up to it and begin a conversation with it and let yourself feel it instead of trying to drink it away or smoke it away or whatever your particular way of dealing with fear is that's troublesome. Instead of doing that, think of it as an old friend or an ally that was protecting you at a certain point in your life, but you don't need that protection anymore. You know, now you can handle things on your own. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. I will live every day as if it were a microphone tucked under my tongue. It's great to get in the game, but don't get in the game until you understand the rules till you're an insider. Your life changes when you begin having a different conversation in your head. What we need to do in radically deep problems is propose radically visionary solutions. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Greetings, everyone. My name is Julie Masters, and you are listening to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement, or a nation. Now, every so often with this podcast, I hit upon a conversation or a person that changes things so fundamentally for me that I can literally mark it as a date in my calendar. And today is one of those conversations. It started a few years ago, actually, when I was gifted a book. A book arrived through the post from two people who I respect very deeply. Now, when two people send you a book with a note that says, you should read this, it's usually a pretty clear sign from the universe that you might have something to learn. So I did what you would expect me to do. I put it in my bookshelf and basically ignored it for the next six months. But when I did finally pull it down and when I did finally read it, true to prediction, it was as if this book had been written just for me. That book was called The Big Leap by Gay Hendricks. In it, he describes a phenomenon known as the upper limit problem. You're going to hear those words a lot today. That being when you have a limit coded into you, like a thermostat setting, that dictates how much abundance, success, creativity, and love you are prepared to let into your life. And the result of the upper limit problem in practical terms is that when you hit that limit, you start to self-sabotage burn out, play small, and create situations that just make you unable to make the big leap that you need to make from your zone of competence into your zone of genius. And your zone of genius is the truest and most powerful expression of who you are, the one that holds the key. If you can reach it, holds the key to unleashing the fullest flow of abundance, success, love, creativity, into your life. So I made a commitment. I was going to read this book every morning for 15 minutes. And when I reached the end, I was going to go back to the beginning and I was going to start again. And I was going to continue to do that until I felt a shift in my own upper limits. Now, did things change immediately? Nope. Did I start to feel the tightness of my grasp and attachments to the limitations I had set on my own existence slowly begin to loosen? Yes. Has it since fundamentally changed how I monitor, respond, and continually reset my own internal thermostat for success? Absolutely. Gay Hendricks has been a leader in the fields of relationship transformation and body-mind therapy for more than 45 years. After earning his PhD in counseling psychology from Stanford, Gay served as professor of counseling psychology at the University of Colorado for 21 years. In that time, he has written more than 40 books. I'm going to say that again, 40 books, including the bestsellers Five Wishes, The Big Leap, Conscious Living, which is another book I would wholeheartedly recommend, all of which are now used as primary texts in universities around the world. Gay speaks on huge stages across the globe 
and has appeared on more than 500 radio and television shows, including Oprah, CNN, CNBC, and many, many others. In this wide-reaching conversation, we dive into the upper limit problem, what it is, how it works, and why he sees it at play at every single level of accomplishment, from award-winning musicians to Fortune 500 CEOs, including the four hidden barriers that we have in our own systems that will trigger it. The zone of excellence versus the zone of genius. And the best way to think about this is the zone of excellence starts out as a feeling. It's the almost numbness we feel when we're doing something that we are great at, but not necessarily passionate about, versus when we are doing the things that bring us alive. We talk about ally thinking. Now, this one was big. Why most of us make poor allies, not just to other people, but to ourselves. And how to reverse that feeling that many people have. I know my, I myself have had many times where you just you feel like you're just some kind of failed DIY project. Some kind of project that you have worked on but not quite made it all the way through. Why 85% of what we hear as children is negative and how to rewrite that script for ourselves and also the children in our own lives. And finally, the difference between being a victim of time and the source of time. And for anyone who feels like you are constantly running against a clock, this one is for you. You know, as an influencer, authority or a trailblazer in any field, you are going to get stuck at some point caught in that wilderness between what has got you here, the skills that you have, and what you know in your heart of hearts will get you ultimately where it is that you want to go. And here's the rub. It really doesn't matter how far along your journey you are. Believe me. And when that happens, we usually have two choices. We can either continue to fight for our limitations for all the reasons and stories that justify why we're just not able to make that big leap right now. Why it can't be us, why we don't have the time, why our situation and our circumstances count us out. Or we can find and slowly begin to unstitch the upper limits of our thinking. This book, this conversation, reminded me which battle I choose to show up on. Now, a little reminder for those ready to take their journey in influence to the next level. Don't forget to hop on to my website or the show notes and download the latest version of my ebook, The Influencer Code. It covers the seven areas and seven core questions that I use with my own clients and that I have found hands down to be the most useful when it comes to fast tracking your level of influence. Just pop in your email address and it will be in your inbox in the time it takes to whistle a tune. On that note, sit back, drive safe, grab a pencil, or just meditate your way through the game-changing wisdom of the incredible Gay Hendricks. Welcome to the podcast, Gay Hendricks. Such a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure to be here. Looking forward to talking to you. Honestly, your work has had, at various times, a massive impact on my life at various moments, various different ways. I'm going to try and cover some of those today. But I wanted to kick off with the question that I always kick off with, um, and the one question that just seems to give me rabbit holes to go down every single time I have a conversation, which is, what's the one idea that's having the most influence on your thinking right now and it can be related to your work not related to your work i would say over the recent you know 10 years or so uh, just a growing appreciation for the power of loving attention that i see person after person make a big shift a big leap uh, if you will to instead of regarding themselves as a failed improvement project to shifting to 
to loving themselves and being with themselves in a space of loving appreciation rather than criticism and censorship. And to me, that's one of the most beautiful things that ever happens. And it, you know, I always like to say I live on a steady diet of miracles uh, because, well, for one thing, because of the big leap, I get the best inbox in town because every day I open up my inbox and people are telling me about their big leaps and achievements and things like that and breakthroughs that they've had. So I've been able to, you know, see up close the power of simply coming to regard yourself with loving appreciation rather than censorship. So I, I would say it, right now and for quite a long time, that's been the big animator for me because uh, I created a job. I, I set out to create a job in my 30s that I would never want to retire from. And, you know, here I am 40 years later or so. Um, I'm 77 now. So 40 years of basically doing that and also focusing especially for the last 30 years or so on only doing things that are in my zone of genius, the things that I most love to do. Uh, that's really uh, been a powerful path so far. Mm. Just, just let's go down this rabbit hole just for, just for a second. Describe for me the difference between like, what is, what is loving attention? Because when you said it, I thought you meant paying loving attention to other people. And I thought, yep, that's a beautiful thing. And then when you flipped it there and said, no, there's paying loving attention to yourself, my mind went blank, which is because I could think of all the ways I could pay more loving attention to other people. But my mind just suddenly went blank. What, what, what does that look like? Like, what does that, what does it look like? What does that feel like? Yeah. I'm sure I do it in some ways, but I can't recall it. Yeah, well, it's an important distinction because, you know, uh, on an airplane, they will tell you, you know, if there's a problem, the oxygen mask will drop down and you're first supposed to put it on yourself before you start taking care of your kids. And there's a very good reason for that. And so um, you, you want the responsible party having the greatest awareness in the situation. And so in any given situation, with yourself, most of us have learned to pay unloving attention to ourselves. And, you know, as I said, regarding ourselves as an improvement project that isn't working very well. And instead, what I have found that the moment you can turn that, the ability to accept yourself lovingly for the very things that you've been criticizing yourself for, what people have found is that criticizing ourselves doesn't make us any better, usually. That just makes us more unhappy. But if you can learn to love aspects of yourself that you've been wrestling with, it changes the whole dynamic. Suddenly all the stress disappears from your life, so you're no longer basically fighting with yourself. And there was once a study where they hitched up little voice-activated microphones around the uh, necks of a bunch of four and five-year-old kids. And, and so they recorded everything that happened at school and at home. And they were looking for how many positive messages did the kids receive versus how many negative messages. In other words, don't stop that, quit that. If you don't stop that, I'm gonna, uh, as opposed to, hey, look over there. Why don't you try this out? And, um, and it was astonishing because when they totaled it all up, it turned out that 85% of the things that the kids were hearing that were going in their ears were negative messages. And when I first saw that study, that just, I mean, it confirmed for me what I'd always suspected. Because I used to spend time, my daughter's, you know, in her 50s now, but uh, when she was uh, in kindergarten in the first grade, I happened to live um, there, uh, I was getting my PhD at time at Stanford, and I lived on the campus where her little elementary school was. And so I was in the habit of going over there and volunteering in the classroom when I didn't have things to do and helping out. And that's when I first started noticing the enormous amount of negative information that was coming in their ears. And so I started figuring out how to make some changes with that. And that that led me to write my first uh, uh, book that was a bestseller called Learning to Love Yourself. And I wrote it, I'll tell you how long ago it was, it was the summer 
I met my wife. So we've been together now 43 years. Uh, so uh, I wrote that uh, just the first year we were together. And it's still in print, <laughs> you know, because the problem is still there that every day, you know, hundreds of people wake up around the world, thousands or millions, and realize that they don't love themselves, that they're a lot better at loving other people than they are at opening opening their own hearts to themselves. And so that's a problem that I think I work with every day is people, uh, well, nowadays I mostly do it on on uh, Zoom and other uh, video kinds of things, but I work with people all the time in other countries. And so I've probably worked with people in maybe 70 or 80 different countries and cultures now, and everybody has that same problem. It doesn't matter if I'm talking to a person in, you know, Dubai or Calcutta or Melbourne or wherever I'm talking to somebody, everybody's got this same issue of trying to change the negative in themselves into positivity. And the best way to do that is to use the healing power of love and attention first on ourselves. Uh, I came across an old Turkish saying, a proverb that says, if a bald man finds a cure, he will surely first use it on himself. And so I started using this on myself, you know, 40 some years ago. And it's worked miracles in my own life because a lot of the things that bothered me in the early years of my life completely disappeared when I began to actually pay loving attention toward myself rather than criticizing myself all the time. Can you give me an example of of that flip in the moment, you know, so we all know what it feels like when, and I love the way you phrase that, you know, we, I think most of us feel like a DI, a failing DIY project. Um, a lot of the time, what, give me an example of, I'm talking to myself about how I'm a failed DIY project. I said, I was going to do this. I haven't done this yet. I said, I was going to speak Spanish. I cannot speak Spanish. I said, I was going to be nicer to my kids. I failed horribly. Um, what happens in the moment? How do you flip that narrative in the moment? You spot that thought going across your head like, oh, why couldn't I have stuck with my Spanish class? Or, oh, why couldn't I learn to cook Indian food? Or whatever the, oh, is why can't I lose weight? I don't know if Australians uh, have an obesity issue down here, but we have a tremendous obesity issue up here where up more than 50% of adults are walking around with a lot of extra weight on them. And I was one of them up until 50 years ago. And I had an experience of what we're talking about. And it turned my whole life around. Within a year, I'd lost 100 pounds, changed my whole way of life. That was long before I met um, my wife, Katie, Kathleen. Um, but uh, when, I was, when I was a kid growing up, I was a classic fat kid in a skinny uh, family. Everybody else was skinny in my family except me. I was eating the same food and getting fat. They later found out there was some real complicated uh, thyroid and pituitary problems. But when I was a kid, there was no way of fixing it. Now there are some ways they go about fixing that problem. I could have had a you know, a set of injections and things like that that would have changed that, but those didn't exist back in 1950. And so um, I was obese as a child and obese as a teenager, and I got into my 20s, and I suddenly had one day, I think uh, I call it blunt force karma. When you've been putting off looking at something in your life for so long, finally it just kind of goes wham, you know, and it hits you all on one day. Uh, I hope Australians don't have things like that, but I suspect they do. <laughs> I think most humans have things like that. Days like that. I, I think so too. But so my life, go back way before you were born to the year of 1969. So here I am. I have a job I don't like. I'm 24 years old. I have a job I don't like. I'm in a relationship that's just going awful very fast. And I... I uh, didn't like the car I had. I didn't like where I was living. And I didn't like that I was carrying around 100 extra pounds of fat. And But I couldn't figure out what to do about it. I tried diets and things like that. And I'd had, I took diet pills for a while. and But nothing had budged. So on this one magic day, I came face to face with blood force karma, I think, because I went out for a walk. 
and I was living in uh, coal country at the time up in New Hampshire, snow country, and I, I was walking kind of fast because I was furious. I just had a big argument with the uh, woman I was with at the time, and I was trying to walk it off. Oh, I forgot to tell you, I smoked two or three packs of cigarettes a day too. Uh, so, you know, just all sorts of stuff was imploding on my life. And I stepped on a place where there was a some snow covering a patch of ice and my feet shot out from under me and I went whoop down on my back and I banged my head. I didn't knock myself out, fortunately. But, you know, like 300 pounds is about what a refrigerator weighs. So when it hits the ground, you know, it's a big deal. And it kind of knocked me out of my self, not unconscious, but it sort of just jolted me out of my usual way of seeing myself. And for about two minutes, I had this amazing enlightenment experience of seeing down through all the layers of myself that I'd never seen before. I could feel all my anger in my body, and I could feel sadness down in my chest, and I could feel all this fear down in my belly. And I hadn't been aware of any of that stuff before. But as I lay there, I realized, oh, I've just not been facing and feeling what's really going on inside me. I've been focusing on trying to remove the outer layers, like a layer of fat through a diet. I hadn't gone down inside and figured out the place where I fundamentally didn't love myself. And so when I got down to that level, I realized that um, I'd been basically walking around oblivious in my life for 24 years to what was really going on beneath my neck. I didn't know anything about my emotions. and But here's the amazing thing. After I let myself feel all those fears and anxieties and sadness and anger and everything, I just lay there and let myself feel it rather than ignore it. And as I did that, I came across a real miracle. I realized that the more I felt my way down into my regular old emotions, like anger, fear, and sadness, I came to a place of absolute peace. I called it pure consciousness, that it's just that pure consciousness that all of us have free, but we usually cloud it over with all sorts of stuff we're unwilling to look at and face in ourselves. For about two minutes there, I just faced all of the things I'd been not looking at all my life. And at the end of that, I felt like a different person. But then I started to feel my regular life coming back. I realized, oh, I'm laying here on a freezing country road. Oh, I want a cigarette. Oh, I got to go back to my apartment, the same old apartment. Oh, I got to go back to my same old job. So it's like my life crowded in on me. But I did something really important, and I want to recommend this to all your viewers and listeners. Think about this carefully. The one thing we have control over is what we commit ourselves to and what we put our attention on. And as I was coming coming back out of that beautiful state I was in, I said, I commit to doing whatever is possible to feel this way all the time, to feel that way I'd felt during those two minutes, to be aware of that pure consciousness at all times. That was my commitment. And I went back and it was like everything was different. I mean, it was exactly the same, but everything had changed because I had changed my underlying relationship with myself. I was now a colleague with myself rather than the jail warden of myself. I was now a friend, an ally. And you know, <clears throat> one of the things, we have a lot of couples that come to our institute here. Uh, my wife and I, uh, about 30 years ago, wrote a relationship book called Conscious Loving. And Conscious Loving became very popular, still very popular, thanks to a young lady named Oprah Winfrey, who was an up-and-coming talk show host at the time. And uh, I love that you call her a young lady. <laughs> yeah, I love her so much. She lives not too far from us now. Uh, but this was back in Chicago when we were first on her show back around 91 or 92, something like that. And we were subs subsequently on 
again, but I remember that first one of being able to talk to 10 million people for the first time about some of these things that we're touching on. And it was a very exhilarating feeling because Katie and I, we always say, um, <clears throat> we went from working with 10 couples in our living room to working with 10 million couples on uh, Oprah. Uh, but why I mentioned the relationship aspect is that when couples come in here, they've been fighting for a while and they don't see each other as allies. So one of the biggest breakthroughs we can make during their sessions here is when they make that shift from being enemies to remembering that they're allies. They're on the same canoe together. You know, they're, it's, a, it's a joint um, thing that they're doing. It's a partnership deal. And so when people make that shift to being allies instead of enemies, and here's what happened with me. I made that shift from being my own enemy smoking two or three packs of cigarettes, you're your own enemy. You're trying to kill yourself. And so I went from that whoosh into seeing myself as someone in need of love rather than punishment. And as I learned to love myself more, things started happening. Like I lost 100 pounds within a year, which is a pretty remarkable thing to do. And, uh, and have kept it off over the years, too. Uh, that's even more rare. You know, some people lose a lot of weight and then they go right out and uh, gain it all. But instead of being a 300 and some pounder, I'm a 180 some pounder and six feet tall and work out at the gym three days a week. So I completely changed my life, you know, 50 some years ago and um, kept on with that commitment, though, through other means. Like I, I went out and got a book of meditation practices. And 50 years ago, I, I, there was no place to meditate, you know, like TM hadn't come along yet and Zen and all that. And, but I learned out of a book first, and I found that I could go into that same pure consciousness state through meditation rather than having to <laughs> hit, up, hit myself on the back um, on a cold road. And that's, that's what I want to offer your folks, too, is the opportunity, instead of creating multiple instances of blunt force karma, to go the easy way. Make your lessons in life be as easy as possible instead of the way I had to make them for the first 24 years of my life. I seem to have to make them as hard as possible. I don't think you're alone there. And I think, you know, that the making, the making of space, you know, again, from your work, the idea of making space in your day, in your life, in your mind, in your heart to meet yourself, to meet yourself willingly and as lovingly as possible and to become an ally to yourself. There's a through line there. You know, the world becomes your ally when you are your own ally. Your partner becomes your ally when you are your own ally. You know, it's the old, as you said, it's the old oxygen mask thing, but it's in an ongoing, even talking to you now, I'm realizing, you know, how much I have been using, you know, failed DIY project language with myself over the past yeah. few years because, you know, best laid plans these past few years. <laughs> I had many best laid plans and, you know, how easy it is to drop back, to drop back there and become your own blunt force karma in your own head. Um, I just want to, I want to leap. Yeah, see what I did there. I want to leap a second because The Big Leap is a book that was gifted to me by two incredible women who are mentors in my life. And it was at a time when I was really stuck. And this book arrived through the post. And in it was language that I have used, I think I probably use it at least once a week, ever since, two years later. And that is the language of the upper limit problem. Mm, Just mm -hmm. let's start there. What is the upper limit problem? The upper limit problem is the tendency to punish ourselves when things start going better. So um, when things start moving along better, things are, you're being more loving to yourself, you're on your diet, maybe, you know, you're three days into your diet or something like that and things are going well. There's a tendency in human existence to sabotage ourselves when things start going better. And I started calling that the upper limit problem because it seemed to me that almost everybody suffers from that. And I started doing research on that and I found out what causes it. Are you interested? Yeah, go on. <laughs> go on. Tell me. Okay. <laughs> it all comes out of fear. 
And not just any fear, but there are several specific fears that drive the upper limit problem. So what happens is things start going better and suddenly we have an unconscious thought that says, I don't deserve to feel this good. That's one of the big fears that human beings carry around is a lot of us think we have a fundamental flaw inside us that makes us not deserve the good things of life, like love and positive energy and good feeling and money and satisfying relationships. And so you can look into any one of those areas and find the area that isn't working, and you can trace that back to one of these fears that I'm talking about. So one of the big fears is that fear that there's something fundamentally flawed about me. I'm the wrong gender. I'm the wrong skin color. I'm the wrong IQ. I live in the wrong place. You know, whatever it is, there's a series of wrongs we think we've committed. And in my work, we consider those imaginary because they're based on that fear. And so that little chunk of fear in there is cranking out these thoughts about you not deserving it. That's not the only fear, though. There's another really big fear that a lot of folks in um, kind of in our line of work. In other words, people that are giving, people that are focused on helping others and that kind of thing. A lot of us suffer from what I call a fear of outshining. And the fear is that if I really let myself shine, that will take away love and attention that other people need more than I. You know, it's that old thing about always letting others go first or appreciating others but not appreciating yourself. It's just part of that whole syndrome of feeling bad about who we are at the core. And the big leap you can make is to make that shift to seeing that all of those old negative thoughts are based on fear. And the way to deal with fear is not to drown it out or stuff it down or tune it out or anything like that. The way to work with fear is to welcome it and open up to it and begin a conversation with it and let yourself feel it instead of trying to drink it away or smoke it away or whatever your particular way of dealing with fear is that's troublesome. Instead of doing that, think of it as an old friend or an ally that, had, that was protecting you at a certain point in your life, but you don't need that protection anymore. You know, now you can handle things on your own. So a lot of the most negative decisions that people make about themselves are made before they pick up that little lunchbox and trudge off to kindergarten or the first grade. I know one of the one of the, the fears that you've spoken about, so there's feeling flawed, um, there's outshining other people, and you know, that's definitely one that I can relate to that goes way, way, way back to my childhood. Um, but one that really struck me that I hadn't thought of before was you said that the idea, so one of these um, upper limit problems, one of these fears that we have that keeps us with a limit on our potential is the idea that more success brings a heavier burden. And as soon as I read it, as soon as I read it, I just, I could pinpoint so many people in my life and myself that have this kind of narrative. You know, if I am more successful, it will mean I'll be busier. I don't want to be busier. I'll spend less time with my children. Um, I will have a big team and I don't want a big team. I, just, I don't want any more complication in my life. Um, it will ruin my my peace. It will mean I have to pay more taxes. You know, da, 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 da. play it out, play it out, play it out. Where does that come from? This idea that my success will cause my pain? Well, I think it comes from very early on when people get punished for expressing their true selves or expressing their creativity. Um, you know, when I'm working with Australians, we've had, probably had, I don't know, 100, 150 people come up from Australia and New Zealand and do our seminars or work one-on-one -on -one with us. And when I'm working with Australians, I always put the upper limit problem, I call it the tall poppy syndrome, uh, because in, uh, I, you know, I've heard, had so many Australians tell me, and they always use the same body language. It's always, don't be the tall poppy or the farmer will cut you off. <laughs> I think you know, anyone can always, imagine where your hand just slid across then. Uh, yeah, right across my throat. And so it's the idea, uh, and it's not just an Australian thing, but like in Sweden, for example, if you do a seminar, we've done seminars in Sweden and they have a word there, logum, 
And lagum means it's sort of like the tall poppy syndrome. It says, don't be too big, don't be too little, stay right in the middle of the pack. Not too much, not too little. Stay down in the pack. And so, um, and other cultures, of course, have similar problems. I mean, similar programming too that, that speak to this issue. But what's the important thing to do is start noticing that in your own life. Just like uh, when I was a little boy, I thought my curtain, you know, was a monster, you know, it was blowing in the, at night and I called my mother in and she turned on the light and of course there was no monster in my curtain, uh, but she had a good solution. She was a good psychologist, uh, although she'd probably never heard of psychology, but uh, she gave me a little flashlight and said, okay, next time if you think there's a monster, just shine the light on it and, you know, you can see what it is right away. And it's the same principle in ourselves that if we really shine the light on those old fears, they begin to dissolve and break up because they're imaginary. They're, they're just things that got a grip on us at one point in our lives. And now they have no relevance except they're still keeping us kind of working inside that old program. And so I want all of your viewers and listeners to be very on the lookout for Start noticing when you have a bunch of worry thoughts and ask yourself, hmm, what of these old fears is causing that? Because if you can make that inward move at that point, that's really very powerful. That can save you 10 years of therapy right there. You said something else in your book, which, which I'm really curious about. You said that the only way through fear is to transform it into the clarity of exhilaration. Now, I love that sentence, but walk, walk me through what that looks like, what that looks like in practice. Well, what it looks like is kind of catching yourself in the moment of feeling afraid. And instead of trying to push it to the side or rise above it, instead, you just let yourself feel it, feeling it, feeling the sensations of the uh, butterflies in your stomach, feeling the tight band around your belly. So letting yourself feel it with non-judgmental awareness. Instead of criticizing and saying, damn you fear, go away. Instead of like, ah, love your fear. Here we say fear is only excitement without the breath. So if you get scared, the first tendency is to <gasps> hold your breath and you know try to kind of seal it off like that. But really the only thing that works with fear is to feel it and participate with it. So, ha, ah, you know, breathing with it, celebrating it, feeling it. Fear has been around for millions of years. Fear was here before we got here. And so uh, everybody's got the same wiring. And interestingly enough, the same wiring that makes you feel excited also can make you feel scared. And so they come out of the same pipeline. And so the important thing to do is transform your fear so that you shine the light on, on it and let yourself lovingly be with it until it dissolves. It will really disappear into space. And then you get that excitement. You get that exhilaration. But it's all about letting yourself feel it rather than sealing it. I'm just joining the dots there. You probably saw my eyes whizzing around my head in the moment between the, the, the inhale and the exhale. I took a sabbatical this year for eight weeks and somebody sent me an email saying, you know, why did you, why did you take the sabbatical and, and what did it do for you? And I'm planning a podcast episode on that at some stage. But the thing that I kept saying over and over again to my friends was, I feel like I just need to exhale. I feel like all I have done over the past few years is a series of inhalations, like, <gasps> and I don't think I've exhaled. I don't think I've given myself the space or lovingly allowed myself to exhale. And because oh, I saved up awareness. all those exhales, you know, suddenly I needed to take eight weeks to just, to just focus on a very long one. And, you know, if you can build in the regular exhale, then you, you possibly don't need the long one. Well, this is a really important point. Um, see, what you're really talking about is, well, let me say it this way. You can use your, meta, your breathing as a metaphor for every aspect of life. For example, let's say a full in-breath, all the way in and all the way out. That's a balanced 
thing because we say here the in-breath is about how much you're willing to experience and the out-breath is about how much you're willing to express. And both of those need to be in balance because what sounds like is you had a, a couple of years of things that were just, <gasps> you know, that, that you were having difficulty letting yourself experience and you built up a big backlog of, ha, ah, now you're on an expression cycle. In the future, don't let yourself go quite that long, okay? <laughs> Stop after a month or so and give yourself an expression cycle. Talk to me about zone of excellence versus zone of genius. So we've got the, the upper limit problem, which is, you know, the ways in which we, we stop ourselves from getting to reaching our full potential. And then the big leap being the leap from that upper limit into our zone of genius. But there's somewhat, there's, there's this zone of excellence in there as well. What's the difference between the zone of excellence and the zone of genius? Really important question, uh, Jules. And here's why. There's, once you get to be, if you're successful, if you're even moderately successful, you're drawing on things in your excellence zone. Your zone of excellence are made up of things you're really good at, uh, things that you do better than other people, things that people pay you and give you raises for, things that people pat you on the back for. And that's a good thing up until the day it isn't. And when it stops being a good thing, the reason is because all of us have a calling to really express our genius. And if we settle for only being in our excellence zone, we don't get into that exalted territory that I call the genius zone. And so the difference, the big difference, is when you're in your genius zone, you're doing things that you love to do and that have your maximum positive impact on other people. That those qualities, the ability to find out what you most love to do and also the ability to find out what makes your biggest contribution to others, to me, that's the work of a successful person is to map that territory out and not to settle for life in the excellent zone. I've probably had, I don't know, maybe 400 to 500 different lawyers, doctors, successful accountants, professional people come to me around age 40 or 45 and they tell me basically the same story. And it's the story they don't have language for it, but they basically say, I'm in my excellent zone. I'm getting well paid. People love it. And I feel like if I have to do five more years of it, it's going to kill me because they've been working hard, but not working smart. And how to work smarter is gradually home more and more in on your unique abilities and what you most love to do. And if you do that, you gradually make a transition you can still do stuff in your excellence zone, but you're also embracing your genius zone. And that helps you avoid burnout because if you keep going in your excellence zone, it takes more and more energy to do that. And up around age 40 or 45, it gets to take a wear and tear and toll on the body. And so it's to our advantage, our health advantage even, to make that shift into doing things that are in our zone of genius. A little bit more about the zone of genius. Um, I mentioned two qualities. You're doing what you love to do and what makes a big contribution to others. But also there's another quality, which is, are you doing the things that, even though they don't take much time, give you the highest quality ideas? You know, like here, we do something with executives. One of the corporations uh, can send an executive to us, usually their CEO, um, and they spend the whole day with us. And it's, you know, it's a fairly pricey thing. It's 25,000 US dollars. And so, um, and so the person comes here with high expectations and they should. One of the first things we have available for them is we ask them to go into a room for 10 minutes and only do two things. One is to ask themselves a question and two is every time they ask the question, take three easy breaths and then ask it again. So for 10 minutes, they're just saying a question 
out louder to themselves, and then they're taking three easy breaths. Here's why we do that. Well, first of all, I'll tell you what the question is. And we call it a wonder, we call it a wonder question because it begins with a hmm. And the, the wonder question is, hmm, what do I most love to do? And then we ask them to take three easy breaths. So like 10 seconds each breath. So 30 seconds of just breathing and listening. Instead of having your mind jump in and try to answer it, we just ask them to ask the question and then back off and breathe. And it's amazing. Some people come out of that 10 minutes and they say, I got it. You know, uh, I could go home now and I got my $25,000 worth because they say, I never really ever listen to myself. I'm always jamming thoughts through my head all the time. So I don't ever just ah, take 30 seconds off from cranking thoughts through your head and just breathe. And so it's a good beginning for the day, though, uh, because by 10 minutes after nine, if you've got somebody already in the space that they feel like they got their work done, imagine what the next nine hours are going to be like. So by the time they kind of come out of here at five or five thirty in the afternoon, they uh, look like they're lit up like a Christmas tree. <laughs> What you're talking about there, and you talk about it a lot in the book, is trying to find your unique ability. And there's a difference between your unique ability and what you're good at. We can be good at a lot of things. And as you said, consider if we were to do them for the next five or six years, we would be utterly miserable. And they may, we may have loved them at one stage, but just life has moved on. We have evolved. If someone sat there just going, oh, I don't know, like what is, what is my unique ability? What would you, what questions would you ask them to see if you can just unpick that a little bit further? Yes. One question I uh, love to ask people when they're looking for their genius, when they're looking for their unique ability, is I often ask them to, in their mind's eye, go back to their childhood. What did you most like to play with? You know, most of us have something that we love to do as a kid where the Grown-ups would say, okay, come in for dinner. And we'd say, what? You know, and we'd forgotten that we're hungry. And then it's, you know, you lose yourself in these kinds of things. And for me, like as a, as a kid, I loved to play with little cars. That was one of the things I could get. But one of the things I did is I had my, um, I spent a lot of time with my grandparents. Uh, my mom was a very busy uh, career person. And so my grandparents did a lot of my uh, child raising. And fortunately, they lived next door. So it was very convenient. I could just walk over there. And so, uh, but I got my grandparents to help me set up a cardboard box in the corner of the living room. And I called it my office. This was before I was in school or kindergarten. I would go sit in my box. I would sit in my office. And the idea was, the game was, people were supposed to come and tell me their problems. Where would a four or five-year-old kid get an idea like that? Because I lived in Leesburg, Florida, which had 10,000 people, no psychiatrists, no psychologists, no social workers, no school counselors. There was nobody in my line of work when I was five years old. But somehow that got into my head and I just loved to sit in my box. The imaginary people that came to me told me about problems, like problems of living. I, I was very clear. I didn't do physical doctoring. You could go to a regular doctor for that. But I bet everybody has something like that that they love to do. Like, well, here, here's a saying from developmental psychology. In your 20s, your job is to experiment. In your 30s, you find your life. In your 40s, you build your life. In your 50s, you enjoy your life. Now, you should enjoy it all along. I mean, don't, uh, don't wait until you're in your 50s. Um, but the idea is, generally speaking, we get more and more ability to kind of go down inside and say, what do I want? What do I want to create in my life? We usually get a glimmer of that in our 20s, but most of us don't really begin to get a sense of that until our 30s. And then the 40s come along and we're building, 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 building. And, you know, like I mentioned earlier, if you're building from your zone of excellence, that's got stress built into it. But if you're building from your zone of genius, that doesn't have any stress. I like to tell a story about back in the Middle Ages, there was a traveler on horseback and he came 
to a, a place and he saw a bunch of people carrying big rocks from the uh, river all the way up to a hill and he couldn't see what was up the hill. And so he, he saw that half of the workers had a smile on their face as they were carrying their rock up the hill and half of them were <sighs> and he stopped one of the ones that had a <sighs> frown on his face and says, what are you doing? And he said, can't you see I'm carrying rocks up a hill? And then he asked one of the people with a smile, what are you doing? And they said, I'm building a cathedral. We're going to build the most beautiful cathedral in the area at the top of that hill. So the why of doing what you're doing is so incredibly important because those other people had just been hired on as day laborers. They didn't have any commitment to the cathedral. So of course, it's just a heavy rock to them. And I'm just, I'm just thinking about self-sabotage there as well. You know, who's going to drop the rock in that situation? Who's going to yeah, drop the rock? Exactly. Um, what's, what's the next step? So, you know, we're in our zone of excellence. We've kind of figured out what our zone of genius is. How do we take the leap? What's the springboard here? I recommend taking a series of small leaps, like begin to do 10 or 20 minutes more every day in your genius zone. Whatever it is, just spend a little more time, bump it up. I, when I first caught onto this in myself, I realized I'm only doing, in my nine hour workday, I'm only doing about one hour that I could consider is really in my genius zone. So I've set an intention. I made a commitment to bumping that up to 30%. So three hours of my nine hour day. And it took me, frankly, uh, probably a year or two to get there. So what I recommend is just set an intention. Use time as your friend. Set an intention of spending 20 more minutes tomorrow. And then on six months from now, spend 40 more minutes in your genius zone. Build it up like that. Like going to the gym every day is better than going to the gym once a year and trying to do your whole exercise program on one long day. Uh, so yeah, bump it up a little bit every day. And here's the thing though. Once you start doing your genius, once you start asking yourself, what do I most love to do? In a way, the universe becomes your friend because you will start to notice more and more ways you can stay in your genius zone. And you'll also start noticing quicker and quicker when you begin to sabotage yourself. I want to talk about the, you had said, I want to talk about ego. You had said that if you're going to make the big leap, your ego needs to be shown the door and it will not go quietly. And and that struck me as really strange because I, I think I had put the wrong things together about the word ego. I think, you know, your ego is the thing that kind of puffs you up. It's your sense of identity. It's your, I would have thought that making this leap took ego, like it took that kind of bolster to do it. And so when you said show your ego the door, I was like, okay, well, what am I like? What am I left with here? If I'm going to leap without my ego, who am I traveling with? Yes. What's going to be left of me over there after my leap? Well, that's such a great question. Thank you, by the way. I don't think anybody's ever asked me about ego before. And um, so I really appreciate that. Um, so here's what I would say to that. Your ego is all of the things you've been using to get uh, positive recognition. Uh, it's also your ego is your way of protecting yourself against pain. So some parts of your ego, your personality is about ways to protect yourself from pain. And some of it is a way to get positive kinds of things. But what if there was a source of energy in you that was much deeper and didn't depend on the machinations of your ego, the ups and downs of your ego in order to provide you with a steady source of energy. And that's what happens when you take your big leap. You jump outside and deeper than your ego and you find that zone of genius which has a natural occurring wellspring of creative energy in it. And that natural wellspring of creative energy doesn't cause stress. Whereas your ego-based attempts to be successful, although they may work, they carry a lot of stress with them because 
you're being driven by fears that you haven't looked into. And once you start looking into those fears and clearing those up, you open a space for that creative wellspring to start nurturing you without any effort on your part. I just want to touch on a couple of the stories that keep us stuck here. We've talked about the fears. Um, we've talked about ego. There's one really big story that, that comes up time and time again, both on this podcast and out there in the world in, at large, and that is the concept of time. I don't have enough time. There's not enough time to reinvent. I don't have enough time in my day. Um, this, this idea that time is this constricted, finite thing, which is definitely a space that I can go to can and do go to with young children and, and everything that comes with that. You talk about Einstein time. D tell me, what is Einstein time? There was a story about Einstein where he was uh, asked to explain the theory of relativity so simply that uh, some high school students could understand it, I think it was. And he said, okay, it goes like this. A minute sitting on a hot stove goes by like an hour. But an hour with your beloved goes by like a minute. Why is that so? I, I begin to think, why is that? And that's what allowed me to discover the secret of time. And if you really understand what I'm getting at in that chapter called Einstein time, my promise to you is if you really get it down in your bones, you'll be able to get twice as much done in half the time because your relationship with time will shift and it will cease being your enemy to you. It'll be so deeply your ally that you will actually come to realize that you're where time comes from. So how do you do that? Well, the first thing you do is stop yourself from speaking as a victim of time. Put yourself on a diet. Just watch during the course of a week how often you say in your mind, oh gosh, I'd do that if I had more time. Or, oh, I wish I had time to do that, but I got to do this. Or you say to one of your kids, uh, you know, they say, mommy, how about this? And you say, oh gosh, we don't have time because it's, you know, I got to cook dinner or whatever the thing is. So that is putting ourselves into a relationship with time where it's the oppressor and we're the victim. And in any situation in life where you go through thinking you're the victim of something, it's going to produce a negative result because you're going to see more and more of your oppression all the time. The stucker you get, the more you think it has to do with an external thing out there. And I'll tell you, um, a lot of people have an obsession with time. I worked with a very powerful um executive yesterday and I'd never seen this person before and in the first probably 10 minutes of working with him he looked at his watch repeatedly you know and and one time he looked at it like 10 seconds after he'd looked at it before and so there's a person who's organized himself so tightly with time that, that there's no possibility to feel good about it. You know, if you're always having to look and see what time it is. On the other end of the scale are people that are so slack about time that they show up a day late or a dollar short, um, you know, all the time. And that's their adaptation to time. But the only solution to that is to step out of the victim position with regard to time and claim ownership of it. And I have people here, the phrase we use is, I'm where time comes from. Because if you can get comfortable with that and quit thinking it's out here somewhere on a watch or a clock, you get out of the victim relationship with it. You claim ownership of it. You claim responsibility for it. You say, okay, I'm going to create my own relationship with time. How do I want it to be? In my own case, I want to be impeccable with outside tick-tock clock time, but I want it to come from a place not of stress or victimhood, but just because I choose to be where I choose to be at the time I choose to be at. And so if you can take responsibility and claim that inside, 
it takes you out of that stressful victim relationship with time. And again, I'm not saying this is an overnight solution, but if you will start working on cleaning up your time ecology, stop talking about time from a victim position. That's the key thing at the beginning. So how does that work in the flip? You know, if I'm, if I'm a time slacker, I'm a reformed time slacker. Um, if I'm a time slacker, does taking responsibility look like A, I cease to be a time slacker and I start taking responsibility for where I'm supposed to be when I said I was going to be there? Or does it mean just fully owning that and saying, you know what, I've said too, but the truth is, um, you know, me and time, we, we, we've got a friendly kind of relaxed relationship and I may that be there at 2.15, but I wanted to let you know that ahead of time. Well, that's a cool thing to do. That's a very conscious thing to do. I've had people do that. And also, um, my trainer, uh, I've been working out three days a week with the same trainer now for more than 10 years. And I'm very dedicated to it. You know, it's an hour of working with machines and dumbbells and things like that. But it always I come out feeling great afterwards. And so it's a whole... Um, I also do other things. I play golf and go for walks and things like that. But this is one thing I'm dedicated to. And because of traffic and things like that, I sometimes get there late. But my trainer said that I'm the only person in the whole gym that every single time I'm going to be late because of traffic or whatever, I text him. I say, Patrick, I'm running five minutes late or Patrick. I'm running five to 10 minutes late. So here in where I live in California, uh, you can't always predict the traffic patterns and even getting from one end of my town to the other um, on a Friday afternoon can be insane. Uh, whereas if I went there on a Monday afternoon, I just whiz right over there. But so anyway, but what does that mean? Impeccability with time means if I'm not going to show up exactly when I said I was gonna show up, I want to let that person know. So that's a conscious way of dealing with time. And so another thing to do, Jules, is to make sure you have a loving relationship with time. So that if, you're, if you have an easygoing relationship with time, go ahead, love yourself for that. Don't try to make you into a look every 10 seconds at your watch kind of person. Love yourself for being that way and then find out how can I be impeccable in the real world so that I don't inconvenience other people or miss out on things because I was late or whatever? So, um, yeah, I, I went from one of those in my own life. I was more obsessive about the time stuff. But as I grew more loving with myself, I realized that that came out of fear. And I wanted a relationship with time that was not based on fear. What's my, my final question? What what big leap are you taking right now? I'm curious. Where where in your life are you taking a big leap? Well, since I only do things that I love to do for the past 20 years, 30 years almost, I've been only doing things that I love to do. So I don't want to do anything different than what I'm already doing in that realm. Um, I would say the big leap I'm taking at present is I'm 77 now and um, I'm I'm getting more comfortable with the idea of my physical body not being here anymore. So that's, a, a, you know, learning to be with death. I mean, I'm in fine shape and everything. So, uh, but you never know at 77, I'm, I might have a bus encounter tomorrow, uh, even though uh, I'm in good health. Uh, but um, I think it's important. I remember um, the Dalai Lama one time, this is what started me thinking this, uh, He's a little older than I am, maybe a little older, uh, a few years older, but he and I are roughly the same generation. He was saying that uh, he was spending a lot of his time practicing not being here. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? You know, practicing not being here, just getting comfortable with the idea of letting my uh, physical body uh, behind. And who uh, I... I'm a kind of a realistic sort of guy. I don't put any attention on life after death or reincarnation or anything like that. I want to have the best possible time while I'm here and I want to exit in the best possible way. So I've been thinking a lot about conscious exit and what does that actually look like and feel like. It's also been up in my mind because my brother is 85 
and he's he's gotten into Parkinson's a lot recently, and his health has declined sharply. And so as I've talked to him a lot recently, I as he's beginning to lose the ability to connect with other people, it's been inspiring me a lot to start focusing on those end-of-life issues. It's the ultimate big leap, really, isn't it? The ultimate... We'll see. <laughs> I've had some pretty good ones so far, so it's going to have to be really good. Well, thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you on a personal level. Thank you for your your books and for putting your wisdom out into the world. It has been helped me in untold ways over the years. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and have seized hold of at least one tool, idea, or mindset that will help you start raising your own level of influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your journey or would just love a roadmap to becoming the most influential voice, idea, or brand in your space, then I have good news. You can now download the latest updated version of my ebook, The Influencer Code, from my website, juliemasters.com. Also, there's a link in the show notes. Just pop in your email address, and I promise I will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in my now 20-plus years of doing this work, not to mention the seven areas and seven core questions that I have found to be hands-down the most valuable when it comes to immediately lifting your ability to make an impact. Download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope it makes a massive difference in both your career and your business. Thank you always to my co-founder and the main brain behind this podcast, Lauren Kelly. You kick my butt in all the right ways. Thank you for making it happen. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an episode.